0: Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Today I have a lot of exciting things to announce, so please stick around at the end of the episode. I promise I won't make it boring. There will be some fun, interesting things. So just stick around so I can make this quick now, and I'll uh, tell you more about all these ideas and announcement and very exciting things going on at the end of the episode. Having said that, I want to tell a big thank you to Audible for supporting History on Fire and sponsoring this episode. As one of our listeners, you can get a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial by going to audible.com forward slash HOF. I also want to give you a sneak preview of one of the announcements that I'll discuss more in details at the end of the episode. I will be part of a tour of the Little Begorn and also other relevant sites throughout Wyoming, South Dakota and Montana that will be taking place this June. I'll tell you a lot more at the end of the episode, but just to give you the heads up that's coming up at the end. Also, please show some love to my regular sponsor. I'm honored to be sponsored by Datsusara and by Omnit.com. These guys have always supported me from day one. Um, This podcast, History on Fire, would probably not exist if it wasn't for the support that these guys have enthusiastically given me over the years and on top of all that they make really amazing products which I use pretty much every day of my life Onnit has some of the best supplements on the market they spare no expenses to create some really wonderful products there Alpha Brain is their flagship supplement check it out you can even check it out for free because if you say you don't like it you don't even have to return it they'll just refund your money and that's it and on top of it, they have all sorts of workout gear, uh, special foods, uh, apparel, a whole lot of other stuff. Go check them out at wwwonnitcom forward slash history. That's O-N-N-I-T dot forward slash history. Also, if you can use a computer bag, a travel bag, a backpack, anything made with the finest hemp available, you can use the code Daniele at checkout by going to dsgear.com and there you go. If you didn't catch any of the above websites, the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com Now, without further ado, let's go say History on Fire. They said that winter was coming. They were right. It's here now. I'm up in a cabin in Big Bear, California, somewhere in the neighborhood of 7,000 feet. A snowstorm is sweeping the land outside, and mountain lions are coming out of the forest looking for food. One was even spotted on my street. But winter means it's time for one of my most sacred rituals. Inside, there's a fire, polenta, and red wine and most importantly the extended version of the Hobbit trilogy, which will quickly be followed by the extended version of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So life is good. It's in this context that I sit down now to record the first episode of this new series. Now, originally I'd planned to do these episodes immediately after the end of the Crazy Horse series. Problem was that Crazy Horse ended up being a four-part series rather than a two-part series, as I had anticipated. And that was far longer than I had expected. So I decided to give it a break. People... I noticed that people tend to lose focus when a series goes on too long. Um, So I figured it was better to break it up, have uh, my four-part on Crazy Horse, and then get into The Little Big Horn. Now, you can start listening now to this series, even if you haven't listened to Crazy Horse prior to this, but for more context, the Crazy Horse episodes are great, so it may not be a bad idea to start there. It's up to you. In any case, without further ado, let's get into the content of this episode. In 1887, while building his home near modern-day Spurfish, in the northern part of the Black Hills of South Dakota... A certain Louis Thoen found himself face to face with a haunting message. On a flat piece of limestone he had just unearthed was scratched the message that sent shivers down his spine. It read Came to the hills in 1833 seven of us De La Comte, Ezra Kind G. W. Wood T. Brown R. Kent WM King Indian Crow All died but me Ezra Kind killed by Indians beyond the high hill got our gold in eighteen thirty four got all the gold we could carry our ponies got by Indians I've lost my gun and nothing to eat and the Indians hunting me Now you can understand how uncovering a piece of rock with this message written on it would have a bit of an impact on your day this is a hell of a haunting powerful message to run into next to your house Ezra kind whoever he might have been never made it back to tell his story his last line tells it tells us what probably happened I've lost my gun and not into it and the Indians hunting me. His remains likely still rest in the Black Hills, and his scalp probably ended up adorning the lodge of some Lakota or Cheyenne warrior. Now, beside being powerfully eerie, his last attempt to communicate with the outside world tells us that the tribes did not take kindly to foreigners coming into the Black Hills. Less than a couple of decades after Ezra Kine's unfortunate trip, a gold-seeking party discovered the same truth the hard way. In 1852, 30 men attempted to reach the hills. Eight changed their minds after spotting Indians watching them. The other 22 were never heard from again. And in 1855, the Lakotas discovered in the hills a trapper named Hercules Levasseur and at that time they decided to escort him out of the territory, well, most of him at least. They sent him back home minus his tongue and his hands, which was their way of delivering the message no trespassing to anyone who would meet Levasur afterwards. All of these gory examples point to the Lakota determination to fight for the Black Hills, The term Black Hills is obviously a misnomer, Uh, these are not hills, they are huge mountains in the western portion of South Dakota. Most of the land around the Black Hills tend to be very flat, so the high peaks can be spotted from many miles away. They appear black against the horizon, which may have been why the term Black Hills came. The highest place in the hills is Harney Peak, which is at over 7000 feet. From there, when you stand there at the top, you can see for over a hundred miles in every direction. Why did tribes like the Lakota and Cheyenne care so much about the Black Hills? The physical features are certainly part of the answer. You know, The rest of the region is uh, freezing in winter and extremely hot in summer. The Black Hills, on the other hand, tend to be more temperate in winter, and they offer protection from the blizzards that sweep the prairies. They're also dotted with lakes and covered with beautiful trees that give shelter against the summer heat. In some way, the Black Hills are a dream for hunting peoples such as the Lakota and Cheyenne, since they are home to many species of animals. But beside this, there are other reasons as well. To the Lakota, the Black Hills are the spiritual center of their universe. Um, They have big religious importance in their worldview. Uh, The Lakota refer to the Black Hills as the heart of everything that is. And they found it only fitting that when satellite pictures of the Black Hills were first taken, they revealed that, seen from space, these mountains do look like a human heart. And even without having grown up in a Lakota household or steeped in the culture, even for me, I can testify by personal experience that there's something special about the black hills I mean I've been in many beautiful mountains all over the world, but there's some there's a feeling that you got there that of course, when you're talking about feelings is a very iffy kind of thing It's not something that you can point to you know back with concrete evidence or proofs. It's, But nonetheless, there is an odd feeling that many people get in the Black Hills, that they don't really get anywhere else. Many Western historians have a much less romantic view of the Lakota past, and more prosaically they argue that the Lakota first came to the Black Hills in 1775 and pushed other tribes from the area, other tribes that lived in the Black Hills before them. The Lakota don't dispute this notion. They don't say, no, we never fought with other tribes. Of course they did. But in their tale, they were returning home. They were originally from the Black Hills and they had migrated elsewhere and they were coming back home. No one knows if there's any truth to this or not. Uh, But one thing that no one can argue with is the modern attachment to the Black Hills by the Lakota people. The conflict between the United States and the Lakota over the Black Hills, is precisely what this History on Fire series is going to be all about. The conflict will ultimately lead to one of the most famous battles of the American West, the iconic Battle of Grass, which is also better known as the Battle of the Little Bighorn it would be difficult to find too many events in American history that have inflamed public imagination as much as the Battle of the Little big Horn. The battle is literally the subject of hundreds of books. It, in some way, strange because from a military standpoint, it's relatively unimportant. It wasn't compared to the huge battles of the Civil War, for example. The Little big Horn was not that big of an engagement however symbolically it was a big deal the battle took place at the end of June 1876 just a few days before the United States was going to celebrate the 100 year anniversary of the Declaration of Independence the country was being swept in this celebratory mood everybody patting themselves on the back at how great and powerful the United States had become when news broke out of what happened at the Little Bighorn, and it sent a shockwave throughout American consciousness. So, despite its relatively minor military importance, the battle is actually one of the most famous in world history. As I mentioned earlier, there are literally hundreds of works on the Little Bighorn. I read a lot of them and I'm still barely scratching the surface. Um, Nathaniel Philbrick, who is the author of a beautiful book about the Little Horn, writes At times, during my research, it seemed as if I had entered a hall of mirrors. Everywhere I turned, there was yet another fatally distorted account of the battle. Philbrick eventually realized that the point was not to find the absolute truth, but in some way to embrace the mystery, because nobody's going to have all of the answers regarding what happened at the Little Big Horn. We are not going to have them either. But what I am trying to do here is to dig from monstrous amount of different sources to put together a somewhat cohesive narrative of what may have happened. Having said that, let's jump into the background of one of the key characters to our story. Since the Crazy Horse series was all about the Lakota side of the story, I'll start this series focusing on a key character from the other side, specifically George Armstrong Custer, the famous officer who led American troops at the Little Bighorn. Now, most simplistic histories have portrayed him as either the embodiment of heroism or as the ultimate evil villain. Custer was more complicated than either portrayals would suggest. There are some clearly horrible things about his life, and about his personality, and there were some truly heroic moments as well. So Custer is more of a... we'll dedicate time to him, because he's not this uh, simplistic type of character. General Sheridan hinted at Custer's complexity when he wrote that he was, uh, I quote, a man who wept with his wife at sentimental drama, but who could ride whooping with his troops over an Indian village full of women and children. Custer was born on a farm in Ohio. Never liked school particularly. He preferred hunting, riding, and more adrenaline-filled activities. By the time he was in his late teens, he had asked a local congressman in Ohio for a letter of recommendation to try to get him into West Point. Custer came from a Democratic family, whereas the congressman was a Republican. However, Custer at this time was in love with a girl whose father worked day and night to convince said congressman to get Custer away from his daughter. He's like, do whatever you want, just send him to West Point, please just don't let him stick around there. And that's how Custer actually did get into West Point. According to all accounts, he quickly developed a reputation as a troublemaker. A friend said of him that he was, I quote, always connected with all the mischief that is going on and never studying any more than he can possibly help. Similarly, author Tim Lehman said, I quote, he earned a reputation for never allowing education to get in the way of having a good time. That's a great line. He earned a reputation for never allowing education to get in the way of having a good time. That tells you a lot about Custer right there. He regularly got to the brink of expulsion and then worked really hard to try to get back in the good graces of uh, the teaching staff at West Point. Once he did it, then he would start partying again and doing all sorts of crazy things, and he played his game back and forth throughout his entire time at West Point. In 1859, when he returned from a two-month leave, when he came back to West Point, he came back with gonorrhea, because apparently his parting included uh, less-than-safe activities. In 1861, he graduated last of his class, 34th out of 34 people, just in time to get a commission as a lieutenant in the cavalry for the Civil War. Now, his finishing last in his class was not because he was stupid, it's because he was more interested in playing than in studying. But regardless, two years later, by 1863, by the time he was 23, uh, he was named... uh, brigadier general by the time he fought at the Battle of Gettysburg. During the Civil War Custer gained fame as one of the Union's best cavalry officers. Which is weird because in some way he did everything possible to get shot and killed in the Civil War. He would he had this long blonde hair down to his shoulders, he regularly wore this very colorful outfits that often he had created himself which seemed designed to attract attention on the battlefield which is usually not something you want to do when there are people on the other side taking a look at who they want to shoot standing out is not the thing you want to do but somehow he always got through okay he had this self-belief he always felt that he would always survive the next charge no matter the odds in some way he was an adrenaline junkie no doubt but he was really just also, uh, by all accounts, an amazing officer. Author Nathaniel Philbrick writes, He had an intuitive sense for the ebb and flow of battle. His extraordinary peripheral vision enabled him to capitalize almost instantly on any emerging weaknesses in the enemy line. And since he was always at the head of a charge, he was always there, ready to lead his men where they were needed most. A soldier from the 7th Cavalry who will later serve under Custer said the man was so full of nervous energy that it was impossible for him to move along patiently. This reminds me of something that Japanese author Yukio Mishima wrote in his commentary on the samurai classic the Agakure. Mishima wrote something that perfectly fit with the existing description of Castor. this is what Mishima wrote there is no such thing as an excess of energy when a lion runs full tilt under his feet the fields disappear he may even pass by the prey he was chasing to the far end of the field why? because he's a lion Castor was never still he was constantly on the move Again, Fieldbrick writes, despite his inconsistencies and flaws, there was something about Custer that distinguished him from most other human beings. He possessed an energy, an ambition, and a charisma that few others could match. He could inspire devotion and great love, along with more than his share of hatred and disdain, and more than anything else, he wanted to be remembered. This idea that he wanted to be remembered indicates that Custer was a bit of uh, a glory hunter and Custer himself at some point had written in years long numbered with the past when I was verging upon manhood my every thought was ambitious not to be wealthy not to be learned but to be great. That's that's a pretty interesting statement, you know. Uh, my every thought was ambitious, not to be wealthy, not to be learned, but to be great. This prompted one of his biographers, uh, Friedrich van der Water, to write, this is adolescence engaging in autobiography. The fact that Custer had this bit of a juvenile streak is something that Custer had no problem. He probably was proud of it, and in some way... He makes it clear that he he saw nothing wrong with it, and yet, despite what may seem this juvenile streak, he was also a genuine, tough soldier. You know one of the key moments in Custer's career within the Civil War took place at the Battle of Gettysburg. The Battle of Gettysburg was, as everybody know you know, is one of those incredibly famous battles in world history very bloody, very tough, hardly fought. There was a moment in the battle when General Jeb Stuart was launching an attempt to break through the Union line. There was a real possibility there that Stuart would be able to join with General George Pickett and possibly even score a victory. All Stuart had to do was to push through a relatively outnumbered regiment from Michigan And if he could do that, that could change the outcome of the battle. In that particular section of the field, southern forces had a 4-1 to numerical advantage. But the one event that changed the outcome of the battle, and some people perhaps over-dramatically say the outcome of the war, was Custer's presence. There was a moment there. Custer was as usual wearing his crazy costume. He was in this black velvet uniform with these gaudy coils of gold lace. So Custer stepped up and assumed command of the 1st Michigan Regiment. He raised his sword and encouraged the men. You know, many of them thought he was a bit crazy, but they admired the fact that he led from the front, that he would be the first one at the head of the charge. So he led all these guys to a counter charge all of them started galloping yelling like a horde of demons and they clash with Stuart forces in the east cavalry field Custer's horse was shot but he quickly found another he lost lots of men during this charge but he managed to stop Stuart. a union officer said that he was I quote the most gallant charge of the war and partially as a result of this after the war was over General Sheridan gave as a prize to Custer's wife, Elizabeth Bacon, also known as Libby, uh, a lady that Custer had met while he was on leave during the Civil War. He gave to her as a gift the very table on which Grant and Lee had signed the surrender that signaled the end of the Civil War. And along with the gift, along with this table, came a note that said... Permit to say, madam, that there is scarcely an individual in our service who has contributed more to bring this desirable result than your gallant husband. So, okay, maybe this is a little hyperbolic, maybe it's an exaggeration, but regardless, the fact that you have guys like General Sheridan suggesting that Custer played this incredibly important role in the Civil War tells you that he wasn't twirling his thumbs during the battle, that's for sure. Sheridan clearly admired Custer, and for the rest of Custer's life, Sheridan would always rely on him as the man he would count on to carry out his will, despite the many political problems that Custer often created for him. In one occasion, he had said to Custer, Custer, you are the only man whom matrimony has not spoiled for a charge. The fact that he remarked on this is because it really wasn't very normal for happily married men to be that reckless with their personal safety, but apparently marriage had very little impact on Custer's tendency toward taking risks. In some way, he was proud to be known as someone who was reckless. In one instance, there's this famous incident when um, he was busy chasing some American Indian tribe in the plains of Kansas, and at that moment, a pack of his greyhounds smelled something and began to chase an antelope. So Custer abandoned the regiment and dashed off to chase the antelope, forgetting all about, you know, we should stay together as troops, so we are in Indian country, we could. He didn't care. Off he went. During the course of the chase, he ran into a buffalo and decided to chase the buffalo instead. And in the excitement of it all, Custer grabbed the reins of his horse with both hands and accidentally shot his horse in the head as he was pulling out his handgun. He got thrown right over. The buffalo just stared at him and then walked off. Why would Custer even tell us this incident? You know, he's the only source for this event taking place. It's not exactly a glamour of stories, but in some way it's almost as if he's telling us that he's proud to be known as this reckless, daredevil kind of guy. Um, He enjoyed how his behavior would be condemned by more timid souls. Problem was that at the end of the Civil War, Custer was out of luck because Custer longed for battle. That's what he lived for. Again, author Philbrick writes, only amid the smoke, blood, and confusion of war and his fidgety and ambitious mind found peace. And in another passage he wrote, Castor embraced the notion of a warrior as a 17th century cavalier, the long-haired romantic with his dogs and his flamboyant clothes, cheerfully leading his men into the mow of death. Castor's approach to war was very romanticized even in the face of horrible reality such as Gettysburg or such as the realities that he will face during the Indian Wars. Regardless of it all, Custer liked battle. He had a good time in it. So much so that during the Civil War he had said I shall regret to see the war end. I would be willing, yes, glad, to see a battle every day during my life. That's a kind of Theodore Roosevelt type of statement, which is not exactly a compliment in terms of mental sanity. As much as I like Roosevelt, you know, somebody, when you consider the reality of battle, what it means to be in war all the time, seeing your friends get shot, seeing all the death and horror of it all, to have somebody telling you that they regret to see the war end and they would be happy to be in a battle every day of their life... It says something about Custer's personality. Most of his men were not nearly as fond of fighting as he was. For him, it was all a big, heroic adventure. For them, it was fear, death, and everything they wanted to avoid. Most of the officers either loved or hated Custer. There really was no middle ground. He was this extreme, polarizing figure, Either incited in people this sense of oh, and people really liked him, or people thought he was insane and hated his guts. But regardless, after the end of the Civil War, Custer's passion for battle and his tendency to be an adrenaline junkie made things difficult for him. His rank post-Civil War had been reduced to Lieutenant Colonel, but they still called him General. Now this was not the big problem, rather the big problem was that at 23 he had led this decisive charge at Gettysburg. What could he do with the rest of his life that would match up to that? By now the only place left for somebody who wanted to get into battles was moving west to go fight against the remaining American Indian tribes that had not been defeated yet. By this point the United States had conquered everything east of the Mississippi River part of the southwest thanks to the Mexican-American War but they still needed to conquer the Midwest, the Great Plains. This part of the country was the dominion of nomadic buffalo hunting tribes such as the Lakota, Cheyenne, Crow, Blackfeet, Kiowa, Shoshone, Arapaho and a whole bunch of others. Initially In the 1840s, the tribes had agreed to let American citizens travel through their lands on their way to the gold fields in California. But then, this turned out to be too much of a disruption to their lives. There were too many settlers traveling through, using up all the firewood, uh, bringing diseases messing with the movement of the buffalo herds since their cows would eat up all the grass and then the buffaloes would move elsewhere so inevitably conflict started breaking out between native peoples and Americans crossing their lands and some early fighting had started in the 1850s these tribes were a particularly difficult enemy to deal with because they were nomadic, since they could just take their tipis down in no time and be gone. You know, they did not have a city you could attack. Their camp could be. They were living on the move. Plus, they lived in a huge territory, which they knew very well, and Americans did not. They were absolute masters of guerrilla warfare. Casters own relationship with American Indians was complicated again in typical history we think of Custer as the ultimate anti-Indian guy, the reality is a little messier Um, there was an Arikara man, uh, one of his scouts named Red Star said Custer had a heart like an Indian and more importantly in Custer's own book entitled My Life on the Plains, which had published in 1874, Custer wrote, If I were an Indian, I often think I would greatly prefer to cast my lot among those of my people adhered to the free, open plains rather than submit to the confined limits of a reservation, there to be the recipient of the blessed benefits of civilization, with its vices thrown in, without stint or measure. This does not sound like the Indian hater described in some overly simplified history books. The guy's telling you, you know, if I had been born among them, I would be fighting against the United States for every inch of land, and I would rather live their life than sign a peace treaty and accept American expansion. That's what Custer is telling you. That's kind of interesting right there. I mean... Natives in some way had precisely the lifestyle that Custer admired. The natives on the plains, they hunted and made war. They lived in the open as nomadic people, rather than in cities. They were often, some of the more important men in the tribes, had multiple wives, something that Custer was, as we'll see, particularly intrigued with. The author Perry Mort writes... They were individualist unbothered by structure and bureaucracy. They were, in short, living the life that most appealed to Caster's temperament. They were the embodiment of freedom. The fact that they were enemies of his culture did not disqualify them from Caster's admiration. Even his pen name for some of the articles he wrote was Nomad. Uh, he was considerably more sympathetic Toward American Indians than many of his contemporaries in white society, but this did not prevent him from slaughtering them in their winter camps when it came to it. That's why it's it's kind of difficult to figure out how to sum up in one liner Custer's feeling about the whole thing. But regardless, the way I see it is that no matter uh, about the fact that his feelings may have about natives may have been softer than those of many Americans. Custer really cared about one thing and one thing only, which was his own personal glory. And if this meant fighting Indians, he wasn't going to shed a tear about it. Plus, admiration and actually understanding are two different things. Grinnell, a zoologist who wrote a book on the Cheyenne, said about Custer he was a good soldier and a good fighter, but like most white men, he did not understand Indians and underrated them. So while it's true that Custer may have admired certain features of native life, he was not exactly buddy-buddy with them. He was not an insider in any way, shape, or form. His early experiences trying to fight against American Indian tribes had been very frustrating. His first summer in the West was in 1867, and Custer spent a lot of time running around without being able to find any natives to fight. For over a year, he chased the mainly Cheyenne Indians all over the place, only to see them disappear them before he could catch them. He kind of developed this obsession with uh, not being able to catch American Indians with them running away and refusing to give battle which in some way played into the story of the Little Bighorn Battle ten years later. Except that in that occasion, as we will see, the natives were definitely not running away. The closest he came to see Indians was in the summer of 1867 in Kansas, under very haunting circumstances. The conflict between the Lakota and Cheyenne on one side against the US Army was pretty intense at this time. Ever since the Americans had started pushing into tribal lands, uh, these tribes had been waging a real warfare against them. Things had been particularly heavy ever since the 1864 Sand Creek Massacre. In the midst of this, a certain lieutenant named uh, Lyman Kidder and 11 soldiers were assigned with the task of delivering a message to Custer from General Sherman. On the way, they were spotted by a Cheyenne warrior society known as the Dog Soldiers. And they, along with the Lakota, started hunting down Kidder and his soldiers. After finding out that Kidder and his men were supposed to have reached Custer, except that they hadn't, Custer started thinking, hmm, maybe something happened, we'd better go look for them. So along with his troops off they went looking to see to find out what happened. And as they retracked their step they first found a dead army of horse. They then kept running into signs of a running battle that had taken place over a few miles between the soldiers being chased and the natives hunting them down. Eventually they found Kidder and his man or They found what was left of them. The bodies were covered in arrows. Indian sources years later will say that the soldier had a Lakota scout who pleaded to be spared, but the other natives saw him as a traitor, so there was a brutal fight which ended with all the soldiers, scout included, getting killed. Caster wrote of this event in the following terms. He said, All died nobly, Fighting to the last. No one is left to tell the tale. What bravery, what heroism must have inspired this devoted little band of martyrs, when surrounded and assailed by a vastly overwhelming force of bloodthirsty barbarian, they manfully struggled to the last, equally devoid of hope or fear. In some way, the very same lines could be applied to the little begorn, or at least that's how Custer would probably see it. But despite this one particular incident, Custer's own experience with natives wasn't, there were no battles. You know, he spent his time chasing them without ever finding them. He felt frustrated. He was chasing ghosts. And to add to his frustration, his men often deserted To leave the army and run off to try to make some money in the gold fields. And in more than one occasion, Custer ordered some of them shot. And yet, Custer himself was not exactly sticking to the rules. During the Civil War, he and his wife had been side by side, but this was not possible on the plains. So one day, Custer decided to abandon his regiment. And rode over 150 miles over the following 60 hours, just so that he could go back to his wife. She thought this was a very romantic gesture, and uh, it led to what she described as one perfect day. Of course, the American Army did not see it the same way. They saw it. They court-martialed him for this, for abandoning his post, and they sentenced him to one year of unpaid leave. But just when it seemed like Custer was out Custer's luck struck again His superior Sheridan wanted to try a new strategy in fighting the tribes This new strategy called for a dawn attack on Cheyenne villages in the middle of winter The problem was that usually villages could move faster than the army could since the army depended on this low-moving supply train and plus, so I mean, yeah, you could try attacking them in winter when they tended to stay put more. The problem with attacking them in winter was that, as legendary mountain man and scout Jim Bridger had told Sheridan, that was a crazy plan because you cannot go chase natives in 40 below temperatures. As Bridger said, you can't hunt Indians on the plains in winter, for blizzards don't respect man or beast. Was this plan crazy? Well, probably was, so Sheridan knew exactly who was best suited for this job. He asked permission to recall the only commander who was crazy enough and fast enough and aggressive enough for his strategy to succeed. Obviously was speaking of Custer. He received this telegram from Sheridan. It said, General Sherman, Sally and myself and nearly all the officers of your regiments I've asked for you, can you come at once? So in late November 1868, after Custer arrived, he set out in southern Kansas to for a campaign against the Arapaho and the Cheyenne. As they left the fort, the band played the classic song that they would always play any time they would leave, uh, a song called The Girl I Left Behind. Not everybody was secure that this was going to be a great idea. An officer had asked, General, suppose we find more Indians there than we can handle? To which Caster in his classic style had replied, All I am afraid of is we won't find half enough. There are not enough Indians in the country to whip the 7th Cavalry. As it turns out, that's not going to be true at least, well, maybe for the time being in this moment, but definitely not down the road. Soldiers had to dismount often in order to move their feet to prevent frostbite, it was that cold. We him, Custer had several scouts from the Osage tribe. I mean, I think it should be clear, but just to clarify further obviously there was no intertribal unity among all native people you know words like native american or american indians they are hopelessly lacking precision since people belong to a tribe they did not belong to a general american so you know somebody from the cheyenne may hate the crow and vice versa or tribes didn't always like each other that's for sure Uh, so because of these rivalries between different tribes some people from one tribe may be more than happy to work with the US government against another tribe it even made sense to join the US army if they were going to fight against your tribal enemies so in this one instance the scouts after riding long and hard for a while they smelled smoke and they heard the sounds of a herd They also heard barking dogs in the distance and most importantly a baby crying and this gave them a big smile because that meant that the enemy camp was nearby. Now there's something a bit creepy about this idea of scouts far away from a camp hearing a baby cry and smiling knowing that they found their prey. When one of Custer's own dogs began to bark in excitement Custer and his brother Tom strangled him, since they clearly couldn't afford to be discovered. Another of his dogs started barking, so they hit him with a horse picket through the skull, because they needed to avoid noise. The weird thing about it is that Custer actually loved these dogs, and yet he had zero qualms about killing them for barking. The camp that they were going to attack belonged to a Cheyenne leader named Black Kettle oddly enough he was one of the peace chiefs among the Cheyenne even General Harney had stated that Black Kettle was as good a friend of the United States as I am problem was that some of the younger Cheyenne warriors had been fighting with Americans and that had returned to hang out with some of the relatives in Black Kettle's camp for the winter there were about 6,000 natives camped for the winter along the Washita River. And this was one of their traditional wintering places since it had plenty of grass, firewood, and protection from blizzards. However, Black Kettle's own camp was only about 300 people and was just a bit away from the main village. On November 17, 1868, the attack on this camp arrived. Custer always Right before battle began, he would always ask his band that regularly traveled with him to play the song Gary Owen during the charge. This reminds me of the way the character played by Robert Duval in Apocalypse Now uses Richard Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries during battle. Uh, if you guys are familiar with Apocalypse Now, you know what I mean. There's this paradoxical weird scene of just this music playing loudly while this wild battle is taking place this is sort of what I picture when I imagine Custer playing Gary Owen as the charge as he's leading the charge so they charge at dawn in the immediate as soon as they crashed into the camp uh, Custer killed an enemy warrior um, a young Cheyenne boy and also aimed a gun at one of his officers Frederick Bentin An officer will play a very important role in the events to come. Uh, Bentin didn't want to shoot him, but the boy shot and wounded his horse, so Bentin shot him dead. Uh, Blackettel was shot, and he died while trying to flee on horseback. His two wives were also killed. Both his body and those of his wives floated in the cold waters of the Washita River at that point. The scout Ben Clark said that the members of E-Company were killing all the fleeing women and kids without mercy. So when Clark went to Custer saying, hey, this is what's going on, what should we do? Custer said to pass the order to stop killing the women and kids. Within 10 minutes, Custer's troop again controlled control of the village thanks to the complete surprise of the attack. Custer claimed that his men had killed over 100 Cheyenne warriors. The Cheyenne said... That was a whole lot less than that. Custer may have been inflating his numbers. But regardless, this was a huge victory for Custer. During the attack, only two of his soldiers were killed and 13 wounded. So it looked like a great success. The problem was that the local Indian agent stated that Black Kettle was a peace chief, that he stayed away from the main village because he wanted to separate his people from the fighting that was going on with the Americans that was undertaken by most of the other Cheyenne so some people say that Custer actually killed one of the few Cheyenne chiefs for peace which was not the best diplomatic move Custer however said that there was nothing peaceful about this camp that uh, his officers found evidence when looking through the tipis they found evidence that some of the warriors in the camp had participated in attacks against settlers in Kansas they found uh, mail photographs and other evidence allowing Custer to say his men had uh, attacked the right target. The reality was probably a little bit of both. Black Kettle was one of the most peaceful Cheyenne leaders, and yet some of his relatives were not, so both aspects were true. Custer at this point ordered the destruction of the camp and the pony herd took over two hours they killed something like seven to eight hundred horses and many of the horses were wounded and would run away before being finished off so they would run away bleeding everywhere so the snow by the river was red with blood which is why the Cheyenne called this battle the Battle of the Red Moon one of Custer's officers Major Joel Elliot noticed the group running away from Blackettel's village and so he called for a group of volunteers to join him in chasing them. While he was leaving, he shouted, Here goes for a brevet or a coffin, indicating that he expected either to die or to do something so heroic that he would be rewarded for. As it turns out, his prophecy would be correct and he would get indeed one of those outcomes. But before we find out what happened to Elliot and this man, let's go back to where Custer was and what was going on next to him. Lieutenant Edward Goffrey was rounding up horses, but from the top of a ridge he saw a much bigger village and hundreds of warriors streaming out of it racing toward them. These were Arapao, Kiowa, and, Comanche, and um, Cheyenne were all allied together. Problem was that Major Elliot had chased the fugitives precisely in that direction and he had not returned. Because the warriors were now close, Custer decided not to send a relief party after Elliot. Black Cattle had, had one hundred fifty warriors and fifty one lodges which had given the seven cavalry a five to one numerical advantage But now, with all the warriors coming from the bigger village, now the soldiers of the Seventh were heavily outnumbered. Custer was tempted to attack anyway, but his scout Ben Clark told him that it would be suicide. They were running low on ammo, they were outnumbered. Night was coming. So they shifted plans to instead rely on some of the prisoners they had taken. They had over 53 between women and kids that they had captured with them so they used uh, these prisoners as human shields they placed them to the flanks of the column so that the new warriors coming onto the scene wouldn't dare to shoot for fear of killing some of their friends and relatives Custer made a feint as if he was ready to attack the main village which caused the warriors to retreat to protect their families but as soon as darkness came, Custer ordered a counter-march in the opposite direction. Still, no news of Elliot or what happened to him. Now, Elliot had gone out on his own decision, not Custer's command, but the officer I referred to earlier, Benteen, blamed Custer anyway. He sent an anonymous letter to a St. Louis newspaper accusing Custer of abandoning Elliot. Furious about this, Custer called the meeting of his officers and Bentin during the meeting, admitted being the author of the letter. Custer was kind of caught by surprise by this, but it was, even though he didn't do anything about it, it was clear that he was mad. This, in some ways, the beginning of a very long-standing rivalry. Uh, you may want to remember the Benteen name, since he will play a very important role at the Little Big Horn. Originally, Benteen was from Virginia, When he had told his slave-owning father that he would go fight for the Union, his father had told him that he hoped, I quote, the first goddamn bullet gets you. Uh, Bentin actually survived, much to the displeasure of his father, and uh, he went on to have a large family. However, four out of his five kids died due to illness. Bentin was clearly a complicated character. He had issues with Pretty much every commander he ever worked with, he had rebuffed Custer's attempts at friendship, and considered Custer's wife, I quote, "about as cool-blooded a woman as I ever knew." Now, while some people did hate Custer, Benteen was pretty much alone in his condemnation of Custer's wife. Pretty everyone, almost all testimonies indicate that everyone loved her. But Bentin was a cranky character, to say the least. In regard to Custer's wife, uh, they, they ended up having no kids. Some people speculate that this was possibly due to Custer's STDs that he had caught, probably from prostitutes. Being married to Custer was clearly not an easy, an easy thing. Sometimes Custer would fall into these long, melancholic silences where he would just not speak to anybody. On top of it, he had amassed major poker and horse racing debts. And on top of it, he was a big womanizer, who would try to sleep with any female in a 100-mile radius just because. There are quite a few reports of Custer's cheating on uh, his wife during the Civil War, with other officers' wives, with some of the cooks following the army, with prostitutes, you name it. His wife was probably aware of this, but mostly looked the other way and was actually very devoted to her husband. In one of the things she wrote, she stated, we army women feel that we are especially privileged because we are making history. And in many ways, it's exactly this sense of shared destiny that kept them together. Uh, Even though, no doubt, it was hard, and, and Libby made no mystery of it. She wrote, It is infinitely worse to be left behind, a prey to all the horrors of imagining what may be happening to the one you love. You slowly eat your heart out with anxiety and to endure such suspense is simply the hardest of all trials that come to the soldier's wife. Which are words which I'm sure lots of people can relate to. Caster had, despite, again cheating on her at every opportunity, had nothing but good things to say about his wife. In one instance he stated, Our married life to me has been one unbroken sea of pleasure. And yet this tension between the fact that he very much loved his wife in his own weird way and the fact that he was ready to drop his life at the drop of a dime regardless of how she felt in the name of glory, this was obviously a source of tension. Libby's own father on his deathbed had told her Armstrong was born a soldier and it is better even if you sorrow your life long that he dies as you would wish, a soldier. A soldier. In other words, her own father was giving advice look, just support him, it's a good thing he's doing, leave it at that. Weeks after he had come back from the attack on the village of the Washita River Custer and Sheridan took some troops and returned to try to find out what happened to Elliot. They found the remains of Black Etel's village covered with crows eating the bodies of the dead. Something that I'm sure happens on a lot of battlefields. About two miles away, they found Elliot and his men. They were all naked and mutilated. Elliot and 17 of his men, as I mentioned earlier, had chased the fugitive for miles, but they, they eventually had run into a much larger force of Cheyenne and Arapa warriors. They had dismounted, and they had made a stand on a small hill, but they were quickly wiped out. Probably this was not Custer's fault. Even had he had sent a support unit, they probably would have been wiped out too, just because there were way too many warriors for them to handle. While it's true that Custer may have been innocent, you know that he really had not committed a crime toward Elliot, he did commit a crime when it comes to his treatment of the captives in the Cheyenne village. The scout Ben Clark said many of the squaws captured at the Washita were used by the officers. There's a common saying among soldiers on the western frontier that well, I'll just say it as it is, as gross as it sounds. The saying went Indian women rape easy there was a scout known as Romero who acted as the regiment's pimp. He he would grab all the female captives and would distribute them to the officer's tents every night. Custer had picked one of the most beautiful women, a woman named Meotzi, and regularly started having sex with her after that. Custer, in his own writing, wrote extensively about her physical beauty, Um, just shortly after she was captured within three months she gave birth to a son which clearly could have not been Custer's son since um, she had been pregnant by the time she was captured however the Cheyenne said that about a year later she gave birth to another son and many people believe that Custer was the father or if not Custer possibly his brother Tom now if his bravery at the Battle of Gettysburg is an example of Custer at his best his rape of POWs is Caster at his worst not that he was alone in this because clearly as you can tell from this story many of the other officers enthusiastically participated but that just you know what can you say about this this is just as gross as it gets Now, let's switch from this nasty tale to something else. While Caster was building a reputation of this uh, Indian fighter, as I mentioned, there was some ambiguity in his relationship toward native people. He kind of built his image on the James Fenimore Cooper type of novels, The Last of the Mohicans kind of thing. You know, when Andy was white and a representative of white civilization, beating away Indians in order to pave the way for civilization. But as author Tim Lehman writes, even as he self-consciously identified with the frontier, he was bringing to an end. So there's this weird dichotomy between fighting to make the frontier quote-unquote civilized, while at the same time liking the life on the frontier before civilization gets there a whole lot more than he would like it afterwards. Regardless of his feelings, following the Battle of the Washita River in November 1868, Custer tried to reinvent himself as a peacemaker. Asking some of his Cheyenne hostages to serve as translator, he tracked down some of the hostile Cheyenne leaders to try to convince them to come to the agencies. And even when his officers pleaded to stop negotiations and attack, Custer kept up with the diplomacy instead, almost as if he were trying to prove that he wasn't some bloodthirsty killer. He negotiated the release of a few white hostages among the Cheyenne. And in one occasion, he sat down for a pipe ceremony, smoking the pipe, which is very important ceremonial activity that most of the tribes on the plain considered a sacred thing, a religious thing. He sat with the Cheyenne, with a Cheyenne leader by the name of Medicine Arrow, who during the course of the ceremony, he told him that, okay, if you want to make peace, let's make peace, but if you ever attack the Cheyenne again, you will be killed. And at the end of the ceremony, they poured some of the ashes from the pipe on his boots, something that Custer did not notice, but the meaning to anyone who was familiar with native cultures was clear. Custer was being cursed. Regardless of the specifics of this story, let's go back to the big picture. By the late 1860s, as these events were taking place, Quakers and other humanitarians had been petitioning the government for quite a while to find a peaceful approach to conflict with American Indians. This was directly flying in the face of Sherman's own policies. Surprising even the Quakers, the newly elected President Ulysses Grant, who was elected in 1868, accepted this idea. He said, let us have peace, which is curious considering that just months earlier Grant had said that the interests of the settlers were to be protected, and I quote from here forward, even if the extermination of every Indian tribe was necessary to secure such a result. So, you know, one day you're advocating genocide and the next second you're saying, let us have peace. What's going on? What caused this change of policy? A lot had to do with money. The civil war had been too expensive, so there really was no money to finance the Indian wars anymore. So Grant's peace policy was born from this economic necessity the government responded to the philanthropists and humanitarians because the wars were simply being too expensive. And already things had been moving in that direction even right before Grant had gotten into office. The Fort Laramie Treaty in 1868 had been an important step in this regard because unlike in the south where Custer operated, in the north the Lakota and Cheyenne had been winning the war. The army, as part of the 1868 eight Four Army Treaty the army agreed to abandon their forts built along the Bozeman Trail um, The treaty confirmed also Indian ownership of a whole lot of land, including the Black Hills Most of South Dakota would be in their hands It also gave them 50 million more acres west of the Dakota so that they could hunt for as long as there would be buffaloes out there even better from a native standpoint in order for any of this land to be legally sold to non-indians 75% of the men would have to sign for uh would have to agree uh, on selling the land so 75% of the lakota would have to say yes we are willing to sell the land for the sale to be legal which is an extremely strict requirement and on top of this the treaty gave them supplies and promised that they would keep non-Indians away from their lands. So, I mean, despite the fact that it's not entirely clear how much the Lakota understood of this treaty, since nobody, wrote, you know, was able to read English. Um, on top of it, so you're you're relying on translations usually. From traders who are themselves barely literate, who have to translate this highly complex legal lingo into a tribal language, so there were probably mistranslations. But regardless, many Lakota, the way they understood it, is that they would not attack Americans anymore, and in turn they would not be attacked and would receive the food and clothes in return. By now, after 1868, the majority of the Lakota lived on reservations. Um, at least partially depending on the government for their subsistence, while a sizable minority still lived the old style, just living in teepees, chasing buffaloes and everything else. The reality of this treaty is that it was just a way to buy time. It was a way for the US to buy time preventing the government from putting more money into a war that was not working well. In the meantime, the real issue was that the, n- the decline in the numbers of buffaloes was doing the work for the government. In the years following the Fort Laramie Treaty, mm-hmm. railroads made it easier to move bulky buffalo robes, making the buffalo trade more profitable. So plenty of professional buffalo hunters flooded the plains with new guns that were more effective, shoot up entire herds just take the robes, leave the meat there to rot on the plains, ship them through the railroads and make a bunch of money. People in the military could not be any happier. You know, They did not organize these buffalo hunts, but they certainly encouraged them. This was the free market doing their dirty work for them. General Sheridan stated that buffalo hunters did more than, I quote, than the entire regular army has done in the last 30 years Uh, we're referring in terms of defeating American Indian tribes Sheridan wanted the extermination of the buffalo and he almost got it Um, the numbers involved are insane it's estimated that at the beginning of the 1800s there were probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 million buffaloes in the United States and by 1895, by the end of the century there will be less than 1000 left this near-extinction event would solve the problem of beating an enemy that was so difficult to find. You don't need to beat them in battle if, if they are starving, if the one animal that they depend on for their survival is being wiped away. So let's jump in time a little bit. So we saw the ending of this phase of the war in 1868, for the next few years the US and the natives will keep an uneasy peace but by 1873 it's becoming clear that the United States is taking the first steps toward breaking the treaty and starting up the war again. During the last few years between 1868 and 1873 Castor had not been having a tremendous amount of fun. During this during this period, the 7th Cavalry that he commanded was sent was sent to the south to serve in the Reconstruction. So he was there chasing KKK members and doing other things that were considerably less glamorous than leading the charge in battle. So Custer was horribly bored during this period. By 1873, when he received the news that he would be recalled with the 7th Cavalry to the Dakotas, Custer was ecstatic. He, his task would be to escort a northern Pacific railway expedition as they scouted land to move the railroad through Montana. Custer had been so bored being away from battle and was now so happy at the thought of going back to fighting Indians that he picked up a chair and smashed it to pieces in celebration. The railroad the expansion of the railroad is a key element in this story in, uh, in the Indian Wars. In a speech to Congress, General Sherman had stated the railroad is a national enterprise and we are forced to protect the men during its survey and construction through probably the most warlike nation of Indians on this continent we'll fight for every foot of the line. The story of the railroads in the 1860s and 1870s is a really crazy one in itself. It almost deserves podcast episodes on its own. I won't do that, so I will touch a little bit on it on this one. So indulge me to give you a little background regarding the railroads, because there's an interesting story right there. One of the main purposes of the expansion of the railroads in the 1860s and 1870s in addition to the obvious ones you can imagine, was to break up the land base of the tribes, and particularly when it comes to the Northern Pacific, uh, to connect the rest of the United States to Montana's gold fields. By 1870, banker J. Cook had agreed to finance the Northern Pacific Railroad. During the Civil War, Cook had been instrumental in using his agents to sell treasury bonds to people who had never invested money before um, he, he had appealed to their patriotism he had worked his selling magic and by the end of the war 5% of northern families owned the union war bonds all in all Cook had sold some 1.6 billion worth of bonds which was 25% of the total federal bond sales in other words the guy knew how to play with money by the end of the war, his own personal net worth was about ten million, which in today's money i don't I can't even count that high it's crazy kind of money. Historian John Lubetkin, speaking of Cook, says Cook bought members of Congress, bribed two vice-presidents, built churches, gave vacations to penniless ministers, and combined qualities of money-getting, corruption, farsight, and piety in such successful proportion that he was venerated by the public, feared by politicians, and considered by all the country's leading banker. So he was the man now who would agree to finance the Northern Pacific Railroad. In an effort to attract investment, the Northern Pacific even changed the name of its western outpost to Bismarck in honor of the famous Prussian politician Otto von Bismarck, hoping that the chancellor would decide to invest in it. Didn't turn out that way. He just said thanks, but didn't send any money. In any way, let's look at how the railroads worked. The railroads, in order to expand, these were not purely private enterprises. Forget this idea of free market capitalism. This was not at all the way the railroad worked. The railroad needed land and money from Congress in order to work. Congress owned all the western lands, so the railroads needed title from Congress not only to build through these lands, but also to millions of acres close to the rails so that they could sell it to finance themselves or at least they could use the land as collateral for loans. Union Pacific was the first to be chartered and financed by Congress It started in 1862 and was completed in 1869. The model ran something like this. Speculators would raise money to bribe politicians. In turn, these politicians would then introduce legislation to charter and finance the railroad. Then the railroad would use contractors and subcontractors to actually build it government agents were sent to certify that the work was done and was done well which needless to say this process opened to a whole lot of corruption so at this point given money and land by congress the railroad would begin to sell the land to raise even more money then with some of this money they would buy ads in the newspapers to advertise the sale of even more land these indirectly forced the newspapers to start writing positively about the railroads and how what a good idea it was to invest in them since the railroads were paying them in advertising sales since it would take years to see any return if you actually own a railroad it would take quite a while to see your money back or any profit however if you are a contractor for the railroad you could get paid right away so what railroad owners typically did was they would be the owners and they would also be their own employees. They would own a contracting company that then, and then they would, which didn't really do anything because their contracting company was purely a name. And then they would use subcontractors that they would pay a whole lot less money. In other words, they would manage to make some money without doing anything. The Union Pacific awarded construction contracts to this credit mobilier as if this credit mobilier was an independent entity when in reality they were owned by Union Pacific. Now, if you are lost in this old tale, I feel for you, economics are strange and weird. But, well, let's see if author Terry Mort can help enlighten us a little bit. He wrote Credit mobilier in turn subcontracted the actual work bought and sold materials to the subcontractors at a profit and also submitted grossly inflated invoices to the Union Pacific, that is, to themselves. The Union Pacific in turn submitted invoices to the federal government which had agreed to finance the railroad construction to the tune of roughly $50 million in addition to granting the Union Pacific 20 million acres of land on which to build the line and to sell real estate. The actual cost incurred in construction was in the neighborhood of thirty million dollars. So the difference in these millions and millions of dollars was pocketed by Union Pacific, which some of it had to be invested into bribing politicians. Credit Mobilier, for example, gave shares of their stock as gifts to congressmen, because as the director of Credit Mobilier, who was also a member of House of Representatives once said, a member of Congress has the right to own property in anything he chooses to invest in. There is no difficulty in inducing men to look after their own property. So see how this scam works? You give a bunch of your shares of the stock to congressmen. So now congressmen own these shares and it's in their best interest to make sure that these shares keep rising in value by helping you out politically. So this is classic corruption that exists often between private corporations and government officials. Nothing new under the sun there. This is just an example of how it played out in the story of the railroads. So by summer 1873, the 7th Cavalry under Custer, which between scouts, soldiers and civilians, who are talking about roughly 1,500 men, escorted northern Pacific surveyors as they made their way through the area of the Yellowstone River. On August 4th, as the army and the surveyors had, were taking a break among the cottonwoods by the Yellowstone River, they were wakened up by cries, Indians, Indians! Only six natives were out there trying to steal horses, but Custer and 20 men quickly gave chase, one thing that alarmed Custer, though, was that he noticed that the Indian warriors were slowing down almost as if inviting them to chase them. So Custer wisely suspected a trap. He had just sent word back to his brother, Tom Custer, to join him as soon as possible when. All of a sudden he noticed on the woods on the side he saw some three to four hundred Lakota warriors hiding there waiting to attack them. If you know assuming that those initial six warriors were able to lead Caster into a trap, he would be find himself surrounded by three to four hundred warriors. Having noticed the trap, Caster and his brother they ran off. They get into a running battle, nothing all that eventful, you know, they shoot at each other with very limited practical results. The Lakota tried to set the grass on fire, but it was too green, so they weren't able to push the fire toward the soldiers. All in all, a lot of maneuvering back and forth takes place, um, but really only three soldiers who were trying to join Custer from a different group were killed. But other than that, not a whole lot of casualties uh, take place in this, we can't even really call it a battle, but in this engagement. A scout, one of Custer's scouts, was from the Arikara tribe, a guy by the name of Bloody Knife. Now, that's a cool name right there. What's your name, Bloody Knife? Wow, I would remember that, that's for sure. He examined the track left behind by the Lakotas and said that this was a large village, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 lodges, which meant somewhere in the 3,000-4,000 people, somewhere along those lines. So Custer and his men divided up forces. Um, Custer chased the village for a few days while the rest of the soldiers kept protecting the surveyors. Um, he got into another minor engagement with the Lakota a few days later they exchanged fire from across the river Um, there were a few casualties on both sides but nothing all that eventful again the newspaper accounts of these engagements seriously worried investors Custer came across as this great Indian fighter being able to keep this large, hostile force at bay. But investors were sensitized to the reality that the Lakota were not going to take the railroad expansion laying down. They were not just going to roll over and let them do it. What does that mean? That meant delays and more money would have to be spent. Now, everybody understood that eventually the natives would be defeated at some point, But at some point, these are not the kind of words that reassure investors. You usually want to know when it is, when you're going to see your returns. So already this was a problem for the Northern Pacific. But even more problematic was the fact that by September 1873, the financial market collapsed. The Panic of 1873 was a global catastrophe that really sent the economy into a downward spiral. Many banks were closed, businesses were ruined and the Northern Pacific ended up bankrupt. The origin of this financial panic began in Europe. Um, I'll try to make it quick and simple for you guys but just to give you the only reason why I'm even going into explaining it Rather than just saying, oh, the economy turned bad and that's the way it was, it's just to show you how sometimes global events can have a big impact on a local level. So what was the Panic of 1873 all about? Well, the UK was the largest importer of wheat, which was mostly coming from Russia and the Ukraine. Russian farmers depended on credit they would borrow money to plant and harvest and they would pay the banks back after the harvest as long as prices were stable it was easy to pay back the loans and make some money the problem was that after the civil war the united states began exporting wheat and other agricultural products so the um, partially because the war had allowed the food industries in the north the capital to start developing their own products and distribution systems, so now they were able to do things they could not do before the war. This abundance of US agricultural products, plus cheaper transportation since grains could be moved faster thanks to the railroads, meant that they could reach Europe undercutting traditional prices. And I quote from author Terry Morton this. He wrote the Russian banks failed because their Nobel clients defaulted on their loans. And the Nobel clients defaulted on their loans because they could no longer sell their wheat at previously high prices. When the UK switched to importing mostly American wheat, now now Russian banks did not have enough money to repay their own borrowings. So the Russian bank system collapsed which indirectly caused the crash of the stock market in Austria and in other places. The banks had done a bad job evaluating the credit worthiness of some of their borrowers, and these had resulted in people being unable to repay their loans. In other words, they just took too many risks and now paid for it. Banks in England, in fear, they tightened credit rules, and raised interest rates, making it impossible to borrow even for good investors. So the influx of American wheat was the starting point, but the bursting of the credit bubble was the big issue. This economic depression would last for five years, and Jay Cook and the uh, Northern Pacific Railroad, you know, Jay Cook's own company collapsed in 1873. He had been the guy behind Northern Pacific, so Northern Pacific in turn collapsed. Cook's collapse sent the American economy in a panic. He was seen as as solid as a financial player as anybody. I mean, he had been the main financier of the Union during the war, so if he could fall, there really were no guarantees. So this is a classic example of the connections between macrocosm and microcosm the connection between the 1873 collapse of the Russian wheat market and Custer's missions are right there. The collapse of the Russian wheat market contributed to credit problems internationally. We contributed to Cook's collapse, which caused the collapse of the Northern Pacific Railroad and problems for the US economy as a whole, which made politicians more willing to look for gold in places such as the Black Hills which is exactly what will eventually lead to the conflict where in which the Battle of the Little Bighorn will take place so it may sound crazy that in order to understand the Battle of the Little Bighorn, you have to look at the Russian wheat market in the 1870s and yet there is a very direct connection between the two so let's look at the Black Hills in 1873 the national debt was over 2 billion. And many people argued that the best way to stimulate the economy would be a gold rush. General Sheridan had kept pushing for war against the Lakota and Cheyenne, but President Grant had this peace policy in place. So Sheridan had to figure out a way to start a war that would force Grant's hand and start some kind of conflict that would justify the war, in other words. So what Sheridan came up with was the idea of a military expedition in the Lakota land, specifically in the Black Hills. What for? Well, the official goal would be to find the location for a fort, to keep an eye on the movement between the reservation and the independent bands that were sometime getting into conflict with the settlers at the border of modern-day South Dakota. That was the official purpose, but the real purpose of the expedition, the unofficial purpose, was to find gold. The hope was gold would be found, and this would force Grand Sand toward war. I'll explain why in a minute, but this is exactly what will happen, so Sheridan is playing his cards very well. Lakota hostility had made it impossible for Americans to verify rumors of gold we have seen at the very beginning of the episode I mentioned what would happen to people who would try to find out about gold in the Black Hills. And yet the Treasury, the American Treasury, was desperately trying to repay the debt they had incurred during the Civil War, which had to be repaid in gold. Prior to the Civil War, The standard economic wisdom of the day was on not going into debt or repaying debt as soon as possible but the civil war changed this. The government spent so much that there was no way to avoid debt or to pay it back quickly. In 1860 the federal debt was $60 million by 1865 it was $2.6 billion. The war gave much, much, much more power to the government's financial arm, which in turn led to the creation of the Board of Internal Revenue, which is something that would have never happened during peacetime. Humanitarians, the Secretary of the Interior, Commissioner of Indian Affairs, they also threw this plan and they opposed it. They knew that this was an excuse to try to start a war. But Sheridan managed to push the idea. Even some soldiers were opposed to this. A soldier, Private Ewer, who served under Benteen, said that by authorizing this expedition into the Black Hills, the government, I quote, forgot its honor, forgot the sacred treating force between itself and the Dakota Sioux, forgot its integrity. A bishop by the name of William Hare complained in person to Grant about the authorization of the Black Hills expedition. He believed that this was in direct violation of the Fort Laramie Treaty. Sheridan asked some of the other generals in charge of military policy, Generals Terry and Sherman, to fidget a little to find a legal excuse to make it sound like he wasn't violating the treaty. Terry, who had helped craft the treaty, stated, I'm unable to see that any just offense is given to the Indians by the expedition to the Black Hills. So Terry basically told all his opponents the expedition is not looking for gold we are not trying to start a war which is obviously as a lie as it will turn out because it becomes pretty clear that that was why they were doing it to begin with but they are at least able to pretend that that's not the case. So now that the authorization arrives Sheridan gets to pick who will lead the expedition into the Black Hills and needless to say he picks Custer. Probably because he knew that he could create a buzz about it, get it in, because Custer was a media darling, you know, he was somebody that newspapers had lots of fun writing about. Again, author Nathaniel Fieldbreak writes Once again, George Custer was called upon to lend his air of gallantry to the dirty work of American imperialism. Now, these are somewhat heavy words from a historian, you know, the dirty work of American imperialism and yet there are really not too many ways to spin it, I mean, it's like when you look at what's happening, it was about breaking the treaty and pushing the boundaries of the empire Um, people don't like to speak of imperialism when it comes to US expansion but I mean, there really there are not too many other ways of putting it the Lakota in the meantime, they had in a council they had held in 1857, the largest council in Lakota tribal history, aware that Americans were looking for gold, and particularly because some French traders who had intermarried with the Lakota had explained how how much Americans valued gold, they had decided that they would kill anyone revealing the gold's existence to the Americans. Uh, in the words of famous Lakota medicine man Black Elk, who is the subject of the book Black Elk Speaks, our people knew there was yellow metal in little chunks up there, but they did not bother with it because it was not good for anything. It's kind of funny how something like gold, which is so valuable in economic terms in Western society, and in other societies as well, meant next to nothing to tribal people who had access to that gold. In any case, the Lakota decided nobody should talk about the existence of gold to the Americans or we know that trouble will come. Um, uh, Lakota by the name of Black Moon said any Indians who should show the gold fields in the Black Hills to white men should die. That's pretty clear right there. When news that the army may undertake an expedition to the Black Hills reached some Lakota, some of them visited Custer where he was stationed in North Dakota and asked him not to go. Custer, as a result of this interaction, wrote Love of country is almost a religion with them. It is not the value of the land that they consider, but their strong local attachment that the white man does not feel and consequently does not respect. General Sheridan, who was the the commander of the military division of the Missouri, so sent Custer and the 7th Cavalry from North Dakota to the Black Hills. It was a very large expedition. They had about 75 Arikara scouts including the bloody knife would be one of Custer's favorite scouts they had some 110 wagons with mules to carry the food there was one lady who joined the expedition a certain Sarah Campbell she worked as a cook for the expedition and she will come to refer to herself as the only white woman to see the Black Hills which may not sound so weird except for the fact that she was black. The expedition had machine guns, they had uh, a whole lot of soldiers, probably over 900, along with them were four scientists, two engineers, a photographer, President's Grant's own 24-year-old son, Fred, which was clearly a smart move on Custer's part to have the President's son along with him in order to gain presidential approval a whole bunch of journalists since Caster understood the power of media and some gold miners who would help test the value of whatever metal they found they also had a couple of doctors with them even though clearly they were not of the highest caliber Uh, one night a soldier asked a doctor to check on another soldier who was sick but one doctor was too drunk to even bother getting up and looking at him the second doctor, who was also drunk, but not quite as drunk, examined the soldier and said, he's fine, he's totally okay, don't worry about it. A few hours later, that soldier died. So from that point on, in uh, Private Ewer's words, after this day, the title of doctor was dropped by the members of each company, and either one of the two talked about at butcher Allen or Drunken Williams. Not exactly the names I would want to have for my doctors, but... Custer also had with him his youngest brother, Boston, who was acting as a civilian guide, even though he really didn't know the country. He also had, more reassuringly, the legendary scout, lonesome Charlie Reynolds, who was one of the best scouts for the Western lands. Many of these people I mentioned would meet their end at the Little bighorn, just a few years later the expedition left Fort Abraham Lincoln near Bismarck, North Dakota and they would travel some 300 miles southwest toward the Black Hills Custer was very aware that the Lakota may attack them in a letter that he wrote to General Terry he said I am confident the Indians do not intend to strew flowers on our pathway as they began moving, after a couple of days' march, they found five rows of buffalo skulls painted red and blue, facing east. Something that they probably didn't know what it was about, um, but it was clearly sign of native presence and they are um, also indicating some of their religious beliefs. Uh, this would be an awesome scene for a movie, uh, showing these soldiers running into these painted buffalo skulls arranged ceremonially on the plains. Speaking of which, I already have a fully written screenplay of a pilot for a TV series about this, so if your best friend happens to be Woody Harrelson or you are otherwise well-connected in Hollywood, please push them my way. This fear of Indian attacks made some of the sentinels really nervous, so they would pretty much every night they would shoot at what they thought were Indians attacking, most of the time they were coyotes roaming close to the camp. None of the scouts knew the best path to the Black Hills, even because the path that may be good for a single rider on horseback may not be good for heavy wagons. So often Custer would scout ahead of the main body, sometimes hours ahead with very little concern for his own personal safety. They kept running into eerie signs of Indian presence along the way even though they never really ran into American Indians. In one instance they explored a cave that was covered with petroglyphs of animals and people and inside they found a skull with a bullet hole above the eye and the doctors declared that the skull had belonged to a white man. On July 24th they finally entered the black hills the way inside the black hills was not easy the whole seven cavalry got strung over a long distance the distance between the beginning and the end of the column was fairly large and had the lakota been around to spot them at this time the soldiers would have made easy targets but luckily for them the lakota were not around there were actually fairly few lakota in the black hills at this time of the year Among the few who were actually in the Black Hills was the 11-year-old Black Elk, the same one I mentioned would become extremely famous as the subject of the bestseller Black Elk Speaks. He was busy hunting squirrels when he heard a voice, which in his worldview that meant he heard a spirit telling him to go back home. So he and the other boys got home and found out that while they were out hunting, their their tribe's medicine man was in the sweat lodge and in the sweat lodge he had heard spirits revealing to him that the band should flee at once because something was going to happen there and the words of the medicine man were quickly confirmed by some of the scouts who spotted Castor soldiers in Black Elk's words we are going to stay there But scouts came to us and said that many soldiers had come into the Black Hills. And that was what Chips, which is the name of the medicine man, saw while he was in the sweat lodge. So on July 26, some scouts reported that they had seen about five Lakota tipis with about 27 people. Custer went to spy on this little village and sent forward an interpreter along with three scouts under a flag of truce. The village leader was not there so some children were sent out to go find him since he was out hunting. In the meantime a woman who was a daughter of the famous Lakota chief Red Cloud who was married to one of the men in the camp invited the interpreter and the scouts into our tipi and offer them some food Had Caster been the homicidal maniac that some people describe, this was the perfect opportunity he could have killed this whole Lakota village with no one to dispute the cause of the attack and no witnesses His own rikara scouts wanted to attack since they were rivals with the Lakota but Caster said no Eventually, the, the camp leader, a guy named One Stab, returned there. He and Custer sat down to smoke the pipe. Custer invited him to stay at his camp. He gave him some bacon and coffee and sugar in exchange for information about the Black Hills. The situation was tense, though, because in the meantime, Custer's Arikara scouts were putting on war paint. Bloody Knife in particular wanted revenge for his son who had been recently killed by the Lakota during a raid. So the Lakota who were visiting with Custer were a bit nervous, a bit edgy about this. So while they were visiting the rest of their village escaped and eventually the four Lakota who had visited Custer in his camp they slipped out quickly chased by the scout a minor shootout took place Uh, One of the Lakota was probably wounded, but the rest were able to escape, all except for their main leader, One Stab, who Custer kept him as a hostage-slash-guide. At the end of the expedition, Custer, though, will release him with a horse and supplies for his services. This was not for the happiness of Bloody Knife, who was quite mad since he wanted to kill him and scalp him. There were a few minor mishaps on this, one soldier got hurt when he got kicked by the horse, another one wounded himself while cleaning his gun, but there was also time for some more light-hearted activities. Um, the troops got to play baseball in the Black Hills, probably the first time ever that anybody had played baseball in the hills. While Caster was away scouting the land, some of the officers had a giant champagne dinner, but the big deal came on August 2nd when the miners in the service of the expedition discovered gold. Promptly a few soldiers set up what they called Caster Park Mining Company and they made a claim on part of the land when the gold was discovered. The claim was obviously not legal since the land was Indian land, but everyone expected that Indian title to the land would be extinguished. Custer wanted to send out news that gold had been discovered as quickly as possible. Problem was, they were in Indian country, so asking somebody to volunteer to go over 100-mile rides to Fort Laramie alone was not something that many people wanted to do. So when Custer asked for a volunteer he heard a bunch of crickets, because nobody wanted to volunteer... Except for his scout, Charlie Reynolds, sitting on a log to the side, and he laconically just said, I'll go, General. Custer asked him, how many men, how much of an escort do you need? Reynolds said he preferred going alone. Reynolds was legendary as a hunter, he was even a better hunter than most American Indians, which was saying quite a lot, considering that's how they made their living. And despite the fact that he was legendary, very little was known about him. He was the prototype of the strong, silent type. Everybody considered him this very mellow, peaceful guy, but no one would tolerate insults lightly. In one occasion when he was stationed at a fort, an officer had insulted him and attacked him. And by the time the fight was over, the officer was found himself with one arm less author E. A. Brinningstall wrote little is known of him except that he had the reputation of being a silent man of great bravery unusual sense and unimpeachable character at intervals he would appear at army posts, remain a while and then drift away no one knew where except that it was known he had no partners. He hunted and trapped alone. Custer and Reynolds had become somewhat close during the Black Hills expedition, or at least as close as Charlie Reynolds would let anyone get. He had no close friends. The story goes that he had been in love with a woman in New Mexico. But... Things had ended up badly, and this affected his already shy personality to push even further into this being very reserved and solitary. Custer's wife wrote about Reynolds in the following terms. She said, He was so shy that he hardly raised his eyes when I extended my hand at the general's introduction. And yet, Custer's wife said that Custer loved him very much and gave him all the most important missions. Elizabeth, again Custer's wife, wrote The country was infested with Indians, and he could only travel at night. During the day he hid his horse as well as he could in the underbrush and lay down in the long grass. In spite of these precautions, he was sometimes so exposed that he could hear the voices of the Indians passing nearby. So that was a scary ride to Fort Laramie. I mean, imagine being alone in enemy country, riding for somewhere between two to four days. There are different theories about it. And finding yourself having to hide in places where natives are so close that you hear their voices and yet you manage to remain undetected and uh, reach your destination alive. By the time he got to Fort Laramie, the news that gold had been found spread like wildfire. These posed some problems with the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty. Western settlers hated the treaty. They hated the humanitarians and politicians in the East who supported the treaty and argued that these guys did not understand the concerns of Western settlers. Most humanitarians and Eastern politicians looked at the people on the Western frontier as genocidal maniacs who all they wanted was to wipe out American Indians. There really wasn't a whole lot of doubt about what would happen to American Indians eventually. But the process of dispossessing natives of their land was taking too long for the taste of most Westerners. So the disagreement between the politicians in the East and settlers in the West was really about means and speed, not about outcome. Eventually, everybody agreed that they would take the land from natives. But to give you an idea of the rhetoric of the times, of the way people spoke about it, let's look at a few quotes on this. A Lieutenant Colonel Richard Irving Dodge wrote to General Crook the following. He said, None but a ring ridden, meek nation would ever think for a moment of leaving such paradise in the hands of miserable savages. Similarly, a newspaper, the Chicago Inter Ocean, said, What to the roaming Yankee! are the links that bind the red man to the home of his fathers. He is but an episode in the advance of the Caucasian. He must decrease, that the newcomers may grow in wealth. And in another passage is stated, it would be a sin against the country and against the world to permit this region so rich in treasure to remain unimproved and unoccupied merely to furnish hunting grounds to savages. So these guys are not exactly big fans of American Indian land rights. Uh, let's add another one, another newspaper, the Yankton Press and the Cotton said, this abominable compact, referring to the 1868 for Laramie Treaty. This abominable compact with marauding bands that regularly make war on the whites in the summer and live on government bounty all winter is now pleaded as a barrier to the improvement and development of one of the richest and most fertile sections in America. What shall be done with these Indian dogs? They will not dig the gold or let others do it. They are too lazy and too much like mere animals to cultivate the fertile soil, mine the coal... Develop the salt mines, bore the petroleum wells, or wash the gold. The same newspapers, when news arrived that Castor had discovered gold, wrote, "Struck it at last! Rich mines of gold and silver reported found by Castor. Prepare for lively times. The national debt to be paid when Castor returns." Lively times indeed this news opened the floodgates to an invasion of wannabe miners into the Black Hills. Oddly enough, the Four Laramie Treaty forced the army to pass an order to kick out all the miners trying to come into the Black Hills, because the treaty had stated that the US would keep its own citizens away from Indian lands. So soldiers were sent out to kick out some of the early miners, but obviously more were coming all the time. In the words of General Sheridan, should the companies now organizing at Sioux City and Yankton trespass on the Sioux Indian reservation, you are hereby directed to use the force at your command to burn the wagon trains, destroy the outfits, and arrest the leaders, confining them at the nearest post in Indian country. Should they succeed in reaching the interior, you are directed to send such force of cavalry in pursuit as will accomplish the purpose above named. Should Congress open up the country for settlement by extinguishing the treaty rights of the Indians, the undersigned will give cordial support to the settlement of the Black Hills. The soldiers were obviously not happy about this job, but they had to do it and he was part of the maneuvering for eventually leading to putting pressure on Congress to extinguish the Fort Laramie Treaty. The um, U.S. Senator John Sherman, who was General Sherman's brother, wrote, if the whole army of the United States stood in the wave, the wave of emigration would pass over it to seek the valley where gold was to be found. So Sheridan, Sherman... All the other guys who had pushed for this Black Hills expedition—they have basically thrown a rock, and they are now hiding in their hands, because they are saying now they pretend they are following the treaty. When the reality of this is obvious, what they did is they created a situation so that gold would be discovered, so that at this point a whole bunch of settlers would be put in pressure to come into the Black Hills, violating the Fort Laramie Treaty. They will make a show as if they will try to enforce the treaty. But really what they have done is create a crisis, a clash between what Congress says that the law is and what American, many American citizens want, which is the abolition of this law. And now they are going to twirl their thumbs on the side while waiting for this clash to come to some kind of a conclusion, hoping that it will lead to Congress abolishing the Fort Laramie Treaty so that they could do what they have wanted all along, have a war with the Lakota and Cheyenne. It is obvious that the discovery of gold had been the goal of the Black Hills expedition all along, and that General Terry had lied. not only had they brought miners along, which would they shouldn't have brought if the goal was truly to build a fort in the Black Hills, but after all it's said and done, no fort was ever built in the Black Hills, indicating that he was about finding the gold and there would be a lot of it more gold will be dug from a single mine in the Black Hills than from any other mine in the continental United States. The change from a peace policy because of the financial collapse in 1873 made taking the Black Hills very needed. They needed a gold rush to stimulate the economy. Eventually, Black Hills gold will not have as dramatic an impact on the national economy as they had hoped, but the gold rush certainly made money for lots of people along the way. The Lakota would later refer to Custer's trail to get to the Black Hills as the Thieves' Road, because this was the beginning of the theft of the Black Hills away from their hands, something that they are still arguing about to this day. Not so indirectly, the expedition set in motion a sequence of events that will lead to the Battle of the Little Big Black Elk himself connects the dot between Custer finding the gold with what will happen to him at Little Big On the way back, Custer and his troops ran into four or five Lakotas who told them that thousands of Lakotas were waiting to attack them near the Little Missouri River. And so for a few days all the troops are scared. It was a made-up story. They probably said it just to spook them as a joke. By the time they got back, Custer jumped off his horse, picked up his wife Elizabeth in his arms, and she dramatically fainted. She was so happy to see him come back alive. At this point in the story, there will be a tiny bit of overlap with the Crazy Horse episode, since we'll focus a bit less on Caster and more on the Indian side of the story. I'll keep it to a minimum, though and I'll try to show you other side to this, beside those mentioned in the Crazy Horse episodes. To make a long story short, miners did not want to leave the Black Hills, despite the soldiers telling them they had to. The soldiers didn't really do a whole lot to kick miners out, so the Lakota were upset. At this juncture, the government now approached the Lakota, saying, sorry, but we can't really keep our own citizens out, as we said we would, so why don't you just make everyone's life easier and just sell us the Black Hills? Some Lakota leaders were willing to have a discussion on this. Quite a few of them had accepted that their old way of life was dead and they had already settled on reservations such as the Red Cloud Agency, Spotted Tail Agency which are modern-day Pine Ridge and Rosebud reservations. They had signed treaty with the U.S., and were generally willing to have a discussion about the Black Hills. Others, however, still live completely free of US control, and they were trying to keep riding the wave of the old life as long as possible. When news of negotiations regarding sale of the Black Hills arrived in their camps, many of them did not take it well. A Lakota named Black Shield said, all those that are in favor of selling their land from their children, let them go. Sitting Bull, the most powerful political leader of the free ranging Lakota, was equally against the sale. Crazy Horse, one of the main war leaders, was against it. Sitting Bull sent word to, he said, tell the white man a Red Cloud. That he, meaning Sitting Bull, that he declared open war and would fight them whenever he met them from that time on. Crazy Horse was disgusted with reports of internal fighting among the chiefs on the reservation and with their readiness to sell the Black Hills. So all of them refused to even bother attending this council. However, when some of Crazy Horse's people told them that they were going to kill some of the Lakota had come from the agency inviting people to this discussion to sell the Black Hills Creziore stopped them he said no we accepted them as guests they brought gifts of peace so we're not gonna fight them so he called out some of the by name some of the people who are planning to attack these other Lakotas willing to sell and he said my friends whoever attempts to murder these people will have to fight me too so he kind of nipped that plan in the bud regardless the free Lakota refused to come in but this is not to say that their message will not be heard loud and clear when the government commissioners met with those Lakota under red cloud and spotted tail were willing to have a discussion about selling the Black Hills and the main point of contention was not to sell or not to sell was how much to sell for Spotted Tail, Red Cloud, they, they were not opposed on principle to selling the Black Hills. They were arguing over details on how much they would be getting. And they basically said that the government offer was too low and they were just haggling over price. But while these negotiations were going on, on September 23rd, some 300 warriors under a Lakota named Little Big Man who had been sent by Sitting Bull to deliver his message, They arrived there, singing a song. The lyrics of the song go something like this. The Black Hills is my land, and I love it. And whoever interferes will hear this gun. They rode into the middle of the negotiations, threatened to kill any Lakota chief who would sign any piece of paper to sell the Black Hills. Negotiations quickly broke down. And the commissioners returned to Washington with the message that the Lakota were not going to sell the land, that there was no way to get it done. So if the government really wanted to get the Black Hills, they would have to forget about doing it legally, and they would have to go to war for them. To you guys I have several announcements today, all of them quite exciting. Let me start with one that has been occupying my mind for the past uh, month plus. I got a story to tell you. Um, Savannah M., who's the author of uh, the History on Fire logo plus the editor of History on Fire, just did her professional debut in Mixed Martial Arts back on December 11th. The whole thing was surreal, you know, being in the locker room there with her, the whole thing gets you know, whatever much you think combat sports are intense when you watch them from the audience, being backstage is a whole other story, right? You're there sitting with somebody and the next moment they go off to their fight and they come back and they are all bloodied up with their heads split open. Tension was crazy high and somehow somehow I don't know I really don't know how, but Savannah was totally cool, almost at home within that environment so off she goes, climbing into the cage and the match, I'll put a link in the episode notes because it's too good the whole match lasted 18 seconds and her poor opponent, who I feel very bad about, was was out cold for longer than the match lasted uh, Savannah displayed some insane KO power that's really uncommon in female MMA and and the funny thing about it all is that afterwards, you know, the excitement from the whole thing runs high, and so the next morning I asked her, you know, were you able to sleep? Were you dreaming about this the whole time? And her comment was that no, I mean the fight was exciting and all, but she spent she spent the whole night dreaming of donuts because um, cutting weight is not fun in preparation for a fight, and now she wanted all the most fattening, satisfying food ever as a reward. So, that was pretty fun. That was one of my experiences of the past. Uh, uh, By the time this is released, it's gonna be over a month, but that was quite exciting. In any case, I'll put a link if you wanna check it out, you like Combat Sports, I'll put a link in the episode notes. But it looks like we have a star in the house. Let's mention something else now. I told you at the very beginning of the episode that I will be part of this tour organized by GeekNationTours.com. This is also super exciting. This is something I'm very pumped about. Uh, basically what it is, is it's going to be a tour that lasts roughly about two weeks, from shortly before mid-June through the anniversary of the Battle of the Little Bighorn, so toward the end of June. And we'll be visiting sites in Wyoming, South Dakota, Montana, including places like Fort Phil Kearney, uh, which is the, and the site of the Fetterman Battle that I discussed in uh, the Crazy Horse episodes. We'll visit the Black Hills of South Dakota that are very relevant to uh, this story for the Little Bighorn. We'll visit the site of the Battle of Wolf Mountain, uh, the Battle of the Rosebud. Uh, we'll go horseback, at the Battle of the Little Big Horn, the whole thing looks to be a lot of fun, and I will be part of most of the tour, if not all of it, I'm not sure yet, but I'll definitely be on for most of it, telling stories and expanding on uh, uh, what we get to see through some of the kind of discussions that you have been hearing on History on Fire. Uh, Teras, the boss at GignationTours.com is still putting the finishing touches on the tour so you can reach out to him for any questions and I'm going to put a link in the episode notes to the tour so you can check it out for yourself and see if that's something that you like to join us for As usual, I'll be posting updates about future episodes and more things regarding uh, the tour that I just mentioned as well as other topics to my Facebook account So if you do use Facebook's, please give a like to my public page. I'll put a link to it in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com and that way you'll be notified of all kind of updates uh, surrounding this podcast. I want to give a big thank you to Audible for supporting History on Fire. For our audience, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. Just go to audible.com forward slash H-O-F and you can browse their amazing selection of audio content download the title for free and start listening in preparing for this series I've read well over 40 books on the subject The Last Stand by Nathaniel Fieldbrick is certainly one of the very best ones about The Battle of the Little Horn. Audible carries this title as well as dozens others relating to Caster, Crazy Horse, Sitting Bull, and The Battle of the Little Bighorn. If you happen to choose a book, maybe one of these, related to this episode, and then you decide you don't like it, no worries, you can exchange it for another title anytime, no questions asked. So get a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial at audible.com forward slash HOF. Again, that's audible.com forward slash HOF. Also, it would be sweet if you can check out the websites for my regular sponsors, www.onnit.com forward slash history you'll have an automatic discount on all your purchases of supplements, special foods, clothing and exercise equipment that ton it carries similarly, if you could use a backpack computer bag, travel bags or any other hemp gear you can check out my favorite at dsgear.com again that's dsgear.com and use the code Daniele at checkout for a discount uh, what else do I want to tell you as usual thank you guys so much for to all the people who have been using the Amazon link for the podcast for your, for your Amazon shopping you help the podcast tremendously and similarly those of you guys who have decided to part with some of your hard-earned money and donate to the podcast you are so sweet I have no words thank you, thank you, thank you if you decide you want to join the sweet souls, you can go to historyonfirepodcast.com forward slash donate and either donate to the podcast or perhaps just bookmark the Amazon link for your future Amazon purchases. Having said all that, um, I did mention just a little bit ago about Savannah's fight. Not only will this be in the episode notes, but also please check out her Facebook page She has a public Facebook page for both their art since she's a really talented artist and their fighting she's a I guess artist as well as a KO artist so that's facebook.com forward slash n-a-h-r-y-e-m again like any other website I mentioned they're all listed in the episode notes check them out there now I swear I will shut up and let you get on with your day hope you have a very good one we